Police across Dallas and Collin counties are worried they have a serial killer on their hands. She'd been painting that morning and she had her painting smock on and she had paint on her fingers and on her hands. There is no way she would lay down on that bed with paint on her fingers and on her shirt unless she had been made to. No way. Welcome back to The Perfect Scam. I'm your host, Bob Sullivan. And this is part two of our four-part series, Fatal Ageism, in connection with AARP, the magazine. When we left our story, Norma French had just passed away, an unattended death. She lived on the legendary fourth floor, the party floor, at the Tradition Prestonwood Independent Living Facility in Dallas. It's fall 2016. That summer, neighbors Juanita Purdy and Leah Corkin had also died, also unattended deaths. So Glenna Day isn't kidding when she hints to daughter Cheryl Kerr that she's beginning to worry. These people are dying all around me. The deaths are unusual for the facility where most of the residents are healthy and enjoy busy days of exercise, driving to have lunch or dinner with family, continuing education. In fact, it's a week after Norma's death, and as friends and family gather at Tradition Prestonwood for her memorial service, Glenna is already busy that morning. She had been up early. I talked to her about 11, but she had been restoring a painting for a friend. Someone had poked a hole in it. It was uh, back in the 18, I think 1890 was the, the date of the painting. And so the canvas was brittle and all, and she had figured out how to soften it up and to, to patch it on the back. And then she had matched the colors, the texture, the style. You couldn't even tell it had been injured. And she had and she had finished it that morning and put it in the frame and had finished. She puts linseed oil on it when she would finish. Glenna has an artist's heart. She's fixed plenty of paintings, plenty of homes, in fact, in her day. She was quite the painter. She was great at interior design. She had an eye for all of that. Oh my goodness, she was so creative. She could sew anything, she could make anything. Wanted a pillow for your couch, not a problem. She could She mm. could do it. She taught me how to just get in there and, and nothing was above what I could try. Mm. And it might not be successful, but you gotta give it a go. And she's just drop dead beautiful. I mean, she doesn't look, she doesn't look 87. She looks like she might be late 70s, maybe. Mm. Wow. She looked like, well, they thought she was my sister. <laughs> and I don't look so old. Glenna has plenty to live for. She still loves to travel, loves spending time with friends and family. She'd been widowed decades earlier, but never remarried. That was part of her charm, Cheryl says. My dad had polio when he was seven. So when they married, obviously he was handicapped. And they were married until he died at the age of 52. And uh, he had emphysema, of course, the smoking got him. But she always took care of him. She was just a, a servant all of her life. And then she never remarried after that. No, no. She was like a, <laughs> a cute little bird that got out of the cage. And there were a lot of, uh, as she would say, I've had a lot of, of people apply for the job, but none that I thought could handle it. <laughs> <laughs> so she also, she was full of funny quotes. She said, uh, if I want something with hairy legs, I'll get a dog. Humor helps keep Lena healthy. She was just funny like that. Came up with, in fact, we've got a whole list of, of things that Nana sings because, and they fit. I mean, they just were, they just were funny. I don't know. She was amazing. I thought she would visit me in the rest home, quite honestly. She's also a generous soul. 
At 87, Glenna is still a more than capable driver. Just a few days after Norma French dies, one of the employees at Tradition Prestonwood becomes ill, very ill, and Glenna jumps into action. She had taken one of the employees of Tradition to the hospital in the middle of the night because they got sick and they called her. And she stayed with them all night and then, and then brought her home. She was always willing to go the extra mile and very people-oriented. And that, that, was, that was just a really sweet thing about her. And she was actually taking care of them. Oh, absolutely. She cared for her caretakers. A couple of days later, it's October 14th, 2016, a Friday night. And Glenna is out doing the kind of thing she often does on weekends. She went to Farmer's Branch for the seniors. They had dances every so often. She loved to dance and had driven her friends to this dance in Farmer's Branch. And the next morning, she wakes up early to get to work finishing that painting repair job. Eleven, I had talked with her on the phone, and she was great. Everything was fine. She's feeling great, busy. And in fact, when I talked with her on Saturday, I was coming home from Chicago after taking care of my daughter and her children for several weeks due to a back injury that my daughter had. And I had to get on her schedule for the next week to go have lunch <laughs> because she was already full. <laughs> so um, she just, I, she, she lived life bigger than any of us. Because Cheryl is traveling, it's a bit of an unusual day. The regular evening phone call never happens. We were on the road and I knew she had plans that night. She had things she was going to do. So I thought, well, I'm not going to. Typically at night she would call like nine o'clock almost mm. every night. We would, I'd call her or she'd call me when she got home and we just didn't get into late. I was tired, but all of her messages and all her responding on social media and her phone all kind of stopped around four o'clock. Cheryl doesn't notice the unusual digital silence from her mom and goes to bed that night at peace. But Glenna's friends have already started to worry. She didn't show for dinner, and they always met for dinner, unless they, you know, said, I've got plans. Because they ate there at Tradition. They had a really nice, they have a really nice dining room. And then the next morning, she didn't answer. when. And my friend knew that, that she would be there early, and then she would go to church. And when she didn't answer, then she went down to the front desk, and they came up and and opened the door, and that's when she was discovered. Glenna is found dead, alone, in her room. Soon after, on Sunday morning, Cheryl's phone starts to ring. I was at church, <laughs> and my phone buzzed, and it said Dallas Police. And I thought, well, that's really strange. So I got up out of church and went and called the man, and he told me. And, of course, I didn't believe it because I had just talked with her, and she was wonderful. And so we left church and were there by probably a 11 o'clock, drove straight to Traditions, and the police were there. One of them stayed until we got there. So that's, but that's how we found out. Cheryl races up to the fourth floor to see her mom. At first, it seems like maybe a peaceful, beautiful last act. The repaired painting sits in an easel, restored to its original beauty. It looks like she finished the project, lay down for a nap, and passed away peacefully looked like a great ending to a wonderful life, you know. She was very project-oriented, always wanted something to do. And so she had done this for her friend, and it looked like she had, you know, like, like you would all hope, just lay down and that's it. But then Cheryl notices something looks off. There were several things about it that were really, really wrong. She had 
ovarian cancer when she was 80. And so she'd gone through chemo and we called it her chemo retail therapy. Whenever she would start feeling better, she'd go shopping. Mm-hmm. And she <laughs> had bought this $400 bedspread that she did not sit on. She would always take it off or turn it back if she was going to sit on the bed. <laughs> she was very persnickety about that. And she was just, I mean, she had nice things, but she took care of them. And she was laying on top of the bedspread, which made me, I, I just thought, well, I, you know, boy, I don't, I don't understand this. And her, fa- I bet I, unfortunately at my age, I have attended several deaths and the look on her face was not one of peace. And mm-hmm just several things like that. Her head wasn't on the pillow. And there's more, a lot more. The other tipping point for me was she'd been painting that morning and she had her painting smock on and she had paint on her fingers and on her hands. There is no way she would lay down on that bed with paint on her fingers and on her shirt unless she had been made to. No way. And when Cheryl starts to move around the room, she begins to realize that some things are missing. All of her jewelry was in her safe locked away because she had gotten uh, arthritis in one of her hands and she couldn't wear the rings. And so she had locked them in the safe. There was a, a, a Rolex missing. We had the empty case, but we didn't have that. And she'd gone to the bank. They always liked to have cash and had withdrawn several hundred dollars. And that was missing out of her billfold. Cheryl reports the missing items to police, but she doesn't know what to make about the paint on her mom's fingernails or any of it. She has a memorial service to plan. It was huge. Um, We did it there at Tradition, and it took up the meeting room and three-fourths of the dining room. I mean, there were several hundred people from Tradition. They did everything for us. I mean, they, they catered lunch. They helped us set up. They didn't charge me one penny. Right around the time that memorial service takes place, on October 30th, two weeks after Glenna Day is found dead... Doris Gleason dies at Tradition Prestonwood. She's found lying on the floor of her apartment. She's 92. It's another unattended death. Natural causes, police say. But daughter Shannon Gleason Dion notices that a necklace is missing. A necklace with a guardian angel figure, the one mom never takes off. In fact, Shannon wears a matching necklace, but it's gone. So is some cash from her purse. Doris's family calls police. Thirteen days later, Dallas police receive a report of a suspicious person at Tradition Prestonwood. Police are told a well-dressed man had been walking around the building claiming to be a maintenance worker. The facility is told to increase security. Reports of suspicious, unattended deaths at Tradition Prestonwood stop. As weeks and months pass, there is a mix of grief and melancholy and a desire to move on. For the families we've told you about, life doesn't get any easier. Lauren Adair is still caring for her sick husband. He dies of cancer before the end of the year, so she has something else to mourn. Ellen French House never really gets time to grieve. Her husband needs a heart transplant. He spends four months in the hospital. So weeks turn to months, and the missing jewelry reports, well, they aren't anyone's top priority. Not at a time like this. But eventually, Ellen French House, daughter of Norma French, gets an update. Remember the rumor that EMTs were to blame for the missing jewelry after those unattended deaths? My sister followed up with Sergeant Davis, the Dallas Police Department, when they opened up a public integrity report for the initial death with theft investigation. 
And she called me and wanted to ask me some questions. I told her some things. She interviewed my brother, my brother-in-law, my sister. She interviewed the police, the fire department guys, the paramedics. She, they interviewed her maid. Anyway, this took a couple months. I want to say, let me think, was it April? Sergeant Davis called my sister and said, we're closing the investigation. We've done these interviews. We do not believe it is any of the Dallas workers. We think it's an inside job. She said, but in a week or two, you need to get these records, you know, sign it. She gave him a form to send in. And she said, because something here is not right. Something is fishy. And... You know, then Laurie called me and I said, well, something's fishy. Why are they closing the case? I just thought, here an investigator says something's fishy. And we don't think it's, you know, the paramedics. They don't like when you accuse their people of stealing. And I felt bad doing it. But I had to pull everybody into the equation because somebody did it. Somebody did it. But for MJ and Cheryl and Ellen and Lauren and Diana, they've all buried their moms, all tried to move on as best they can. The questions still linger about the missing jewelry, about how someone can be so healthy one day and die the next. But life does go on until about one year later, on March 19th, 2018, when Mary Bartell opens her apartment door and she sees a menacing pair of green gloves reach around the door. Mary lives in a different, independent living facility, Preston Place. It's about 10 minutes north of Tradition, just on the other side of George Bush Turnpike. But it's about to be linked to Tradition and Edgemere forever. Here's a recording, later played in open court, of Mary Bartell describing what happens when she opens the door. I knew instantly when I saw those two green rubber gloves Number one, I should not have opened the door. Number two, my life was in grave danger. I tried to push the door shut. He was inside in my apartment. And he said, don't fight me. Lie on the bed. He just smashed all held down hard over my my face and my chest and I I just couldn't breathe. Mary Bartell had been attacked in her apartment by an assailant. She passes out, but her heart keeps going, perhaps because of a pacemaker that she has. And when she's found by a friend, she's revived. And that is about to change the lives of dozens of families in the Dallas area. When you came to, did you notice uh, on your hands, or did someone notice on your hands that you were missing some jewelry? I noticed it. All right. What were you missing on your hands? I was missing my engagement ring and my wedding ring. When Mary Bartell wakes up, she tells the EMTs that her rings are gone, that she'd been attacked, and she's able to describe the attacker. The story sounds familiar to police investigators. Six months earlier, in the fall of 2017, a 93-year-old woman living at 
Parkview Independent Living Facility nearby had told police that a well-dressed man had come to her door claiming to be a maintenance worker. When she said she didn't need any work done, he forces his way inside, knocks her from her walker to the floor, and tries to smother her with a pillow. He takes jewelry and leaves. The woman survives, but she's unable to provide a clear description of her assailant. But Mary Bartell's description is enough to point to one man. The same man who'd been arrested for trespassing at Edgemere nearly two years earlier, who'd been the subject of that suspicious person report at Tradition Prestonwood a year earlier. Immediately, police begin hunting for a man named Billy Shamirmir. Within a day, they're staking out his apartment. Right then, as police lay in wait to nab their suspect, Shamirmir is at a nearby Walmart. And so is Lou T. Harris. She's there to pick up a few things for her home in Dallas. Here's her son-in-law describing Harris's amazing life journey from Vietnam to Dallas. It's a recording of his testimony in a Dallas courtroom. She grew up in, in uh, Cholan, which is the Chinese section of Saigon. And uh, she went to school there and then she opened up a business, which she owned a restaurant and bar in downtown Saigon, uh, which is you know kind of near the French embassy. And she ran that, and her restaurant was across the street from Caltex, which is where my father-in-law worked. That's where their offices were. And so they met and married in uh, 1974. When the demise of Saigon was imminent, and he was called out to Hong Kong, uh, out to Hong Kong by his company, but he had arranged paperwork for her and she actually got out of Saigon on a helicopter off the American embassy to an aircraft carrier in the South China Sea. Eventually, after the war, the family settles in Dallas. She was a very fun person, very humorous, very generous. You know, most people hate their mother-in-law. My mother-in-law was a hoot. Yeah. I mean, she, she was very... Very fun to be around. You, you mentioned that she's generous. Uh, lots of gifts. Uh, yeah, I mean, she, you know, like your birthday, she always had a $2 bill on the gift card. And just about 24 hours after the Mary Bartell attack, Lou T. Harris is shopping at that Walmart and doesn't know she's being watched by Billy Shamirmir. Store surveillance video shows him checking out only a moment before she does. Shamirmir follows her in his car, then follows her into her Dallas home. Soon after Shamir Mir returns to his apartment complex, police are there for the stakeout. They watch as he casually tosses a jewelry box into a trash can. They descend on their suspect. I approach him, uh, I see that it's Mr. Shamir Mir. Uh, the car door was open. I identified myself, asked the police, tell him to get out of the vehicle. One, I got no reaction from him. Um, I observed that when I approach him on the driver's, on the driver's side, I observed that in his left hand, he is carrying a uh, clear plastic bag with jewelry. I repeatedly tell him he's under arrest to get out of the car. He's going to get out of the car. So I, I pulled him out of the vehicle and uh, 
thrown him out in the parking Police find Shamir Mir holding Harris's jewelry and a wad of $2 bills. Her name is inside the jewelry box he threw in the trash. They also find a set of keys in his car that open Harris's front door. When they rush to her home, they find her dead, a pillow nearby, covered in lipstick marks. Investigators interrogate Shamir Mir, and he tells them nothing. But pulling on the threads of the story, the trespassing arrest, the missing jewelry reports, the prior close call at Parkview, the horror of what has really happened starts to sink in. There are hundreds of unattended deaths involving the elderly every year in the Dallas area, and there's now a pile of theft reports. Just how far does the trail of Billy Shamir lead? On March 23rd, just three days after the arrest, police go public with the story. They need help tracking down the trail of victims. Are you 55 plus? There are many ways your community could use your help. As an AmeriCorps Seniors Volunteer, you can put your skills to work for the causes you care about, whether that's by becoming a companion for an older adult or a foster grandparent for a child, tutoring students, joining a disaster response effort, or fulfilling another interest. Choose how, where, and when you want to volunteer starting at just a few hours a month. This is your moment to make a positive impact on your community and get back so much more in return. Visit americourt.gov slash your moment today. We're not going to leave any stone left unturned. Police across Dallas and Collin counties are worried they have a serial killer on their hands. He's under arrest, in jail, on a million-dollar bond, and we are just learning about a possible string of crimes targeting the elderly. Billy Shamir Mir, 45, is accused of capital murder and attempted murder. In, in Dallas alone, our initial estimates is over 750 uh, elderly females that we're going to go back and review those cases. Police say they're looking into this man, Billy Shamir Mir. For years, he's been posing as a home health care nurse or maintenance worker. They believe he's been attacking and possibly murdering elderly women and stealing their jewelry. It's not just the police who start casting a wide net. The family of Dr. Catherine Sinclair, the first unattended death we mentioned last episode at Edgemere, well, they believe she was murdered now, and they want their own investigation. They get in touch with Trey Crawford. It was probably in early April of 2018 when I first heard the name Billy Shmirmir. And when we did, it was actually, we had just started our law firm probably a couple of months prior and with some people that I've practiced with for a very long time and we've since grown. But I recall getting a phone call from a colleague outside of our firm saying, hey, um, you know, there may be an issue with respect to this family whose loved one they believe was murdered by a serial killer who had recently been arrested and, and that that woman her name was dr Catherine sinclair we met with the sinclair family in april of 2016 they were convinced that shamir mir was the person who had murdered their aunt and they and they were positive about that because of all of the abnormalities that were present at the time of death dr sinclair was a very healthy beautiful woman she had and they'd been uh, to dinner with her the night before, she's very vibrant, no, nowhere close to being where you would think that she's living her last days. And her safe was missing. And when their, uh, the loved ones, Dan and Jane, had come to the scene and, and actually had the chance to see their aunt, uh, nothing looked right about it at all. When Crawford starts to investigate their claims, 
the truth is almost too horrible to see. When we started uncovering suggestions that this was far more widespread than this, and I think at the time, law enforcement who had just arrested Shamir Mir just a few days prior, and were starting to see all the connectivity between literally hundreds of prior similar instances where you had elderly individuals who all of a sudden were showing up dead and unattended and had contemporaneously reported missing jewelry. We started spotting significant abnormalities and started pulling pretty much everything we could that was publicly available of prior incidents at Edgemere and other independent living communities that we believed he had gone to. And it was pretty astonishing when we got that information back and started really putting together some of the pieces. And there are a lot of pieces to put together. Trey's firm is, in some ways, investigating Shamir Mir's case in reverse. We were kind of working in the opposite direction in time, if that makes sense. You know, law enforcement was, was kind of working from 2018 backwards. And we were representing a victim who was on the front end. In fact, the first known victim, I guess, that's been indicted, Dr. Sinclair. We were working from that time period up towards the present. We were trying to kind of move that way, but at the same time also following what was, you know, being discovered in the criminal case that was public publicly available. I, I can't tell you how many times we have read the uh, search warrant affidavit and the evidence that was gathered at the scene there. And almost every time you do, you see something different that triggers something else that you've since uncovered um, that has some semblance or has, you know, fills a piece to the puzzle, even if it's a small piece. And those puzzle pieces lead to uncovering the truth about more and more of these unattended deaths. Trey starts calling the families of anyone who had died recently at the various independent living facilities in Dallas, just doing research. But some of these interviews lead to awful discoveries. And those calls were not easy. We would try to locate the next of kin of these families just to you know, further understand the facts and circumstances surrounding the, the victims that we were representing at the time so we can really, no stone unturned, understand the who, what, where, when, why, and how of this criminal activity as best we could. And in doing so, you know, many times we would start, you know, by introducing ourselves, you know, here's who we represent and here's why we kind of need to talk to you a little bit about this because you may know something that's helpful for one of our clients. And there was a number of times where we would have that call and a light bulb went off and you could tell through the phone, they knew right then that their mom was a victim too. And in some cases, that means it's Trey's job to deliver the chilling news to families that their mom or their dad didn't actually die peacefully. I mean, and those phone calls were very difficult. You know, nobody wants to believe or think that this could happen, but you also cannot deny facts and evidence that are just staring you in the face. And then the more you learn about the specifics and then, you know, juxtapose that with what law enforcement has that corresponds with those victims, it's just, it's hard to swallow. It's really being forced to relive a tragic, uh, and tragic, I mean, people, you know, pass, you know, we're, you know, at some point you're, 
it's your time. And we kind of accept that. You never think it's the next day. And particularly for our clients' families, and that, you know, they had many more years ahead of them. And it was never for, for any of them, it was not like, you know, okay, well, you know, mom is not doing well and we only have a few days left. They were all thinking they had years left. And then to all of a sudden be met with that shocking reality that they're no longer here and you're wondering, you know, why, but you're being told, well, that's just how it happens. And then to find out several years later that they were actually murdered. And so you're forced to relive that. And I can tell you from most of their perspectives, there's not a day that goes by they don't think about it. And wondering, it's just, you know, your loved one's last memory on earth is living a horrific death. Just how many murder victims would police and Trey Crawford find? What is it like to learn that your mom or dad, who you thought died of natural causes, was actually murdered? And why would a jury find the case against Billy Shamir Mir inconclusive? That's next week on The Perfect Scam. If you have been targeted by a scam or fraud, you are not alone. Call the AARP Fraud Watch Network Helpline at 877-908-3360. Their trained fraud specialists can provide you with free support and guidance on what to do next. For this special report, we want to thank AARP The Magazine's Vice President and Editor-in-Chief Bob Love, Executive Editor Bill Horn, Investigative Journalist Lisa Olson, and researcher, fact-checker, Annette Deinzer. Thank you to our team of Scambusters, associate producer, Annalie Embry, researcher, Sarah Binney, executive producer, Julie Getz, and our audio engineer and sound designer, Julio Gonzalez. Be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For AARP's The Perfect Scam, I'm Bob Sullivan. <laughs>